Good morning. It's Friday, April 24th, and this is the Weekend Debrief. I'm Josh Durso, and we are here in the studio in the FingerLakes1.com studio. Ted Baker is with me this morning. Uh, as always, Ted, welcome. You have had a week off. I couldn't take it anymore. I, seriously, just talking about all COVID all the time, I just I, I asked for a week off. And uh, thank you to Joe Salzone, who's been filling in this week. So uh, I'll be back on the radio Monday. And I spoke with him this morning. We had our, our conversation. Um, interesting stuff. It's been, I feel like we're in this holding pattern now from a news perspective. Um, we're not seeing a ton of things change per se. Um, but we're we're still in the thick of this social distancing. We're still in the thick of uh, New York on pause. Um, we're getting more and more feedback now in terms of businesses who are either frustrated or tired or feeling disconnected from the various safety nets that are supposed to be propping them up. We're still hearing a lot of stories about folks who are trying to get through uh, to unemployment unsuccessfully weeks after the governor um, and and the state frankly said that they had this uh, they had this fixed um, yesterday we we did get one tidbit on that front that I wanted to mention off the top uh, the governor and the secretary to the governor both said that it was predominantly uh, sole proprietors and self-employed folks who were left um, to be moved through the the system, the process, the unemployment system and process, I should say. Um, but let me tell you, it this is not reassuring to any of those folks. And and frankly, now um, seeing the response that we've seen from a lot of, I'll say, medium-sized businesses, medium and large-sized businesses, um, whether it was offering some sort of like temporary pay or temporary assistance or just continuing to pay their employees. These self-employed folks are the ones who were in the tightest spot from the jump. Um, so I think this is something that the state is really going to have to get ironed out and ironed out soon um, because there's there just really ha- there wasn't much room for error to begin with for these people. And, you know, it, it's just interesting. What are you seeing um, around Yates County um, and, frankly, in your travels around the region thus far? Um, what are you seeing in terms of actual um, businesses that are still open? If you were sort of trying to take a guess, what's that percentage set out of businesses that are trying to make a go of it still one month plus some into this whole thing? I think most of them are, but just as most people know, I'm a craft beverage aficionado. I have a, a circuit that I usually do on Friday, and those two places now are both pretty much down to the owner's. Uh, I mean, we're seeing more and more people laid off. So, uh, you know, that that's going to be a, a, an industry segment that's going to just be crushed. I, I would predict there'll be a significant percentage of these little breweries, cideries, and probably wineries as well that are not going to reopen when this is over because they just they can't make it. I talked to one a couple of weeks ago who said he's at roughly 10% of his usual level of business. But just anecdotally, that, that's what I'm seeing, is, is the places I go to are, you know, they, they started with a skeleton staff. Now the skeleton staff's gone. Now it's it's the owners, in, in some cases, owners who usually don't even come into the business right. are now in with their sleeves rolled up running it. it it's, I mean, I don't know that we can make it to May 15th. I mean, we're still talking about, you know, almost three more weeks 
Until... I was going to say that's that seems to be the big the big question. I feel like that officials haven't really had to deal with directly yet is the reality of businesses. It's one thing to say that you're going to institute these policies and these programs, like we're going to talk about the PPP here in a little bit. Um, these you can hand out money for a while, but eventually the money to cover payroll doesn't make up for the fact that you are not making any money at all. So it is going to be very interesting, I think, to see how not just state officials, but I think local officials are going to be the ones who bear the brunt of that uh, of that force. I mean, the, the governor has has quipped a couple times, you know, made offhanded remarks during his his daily briefings. Well, you know, if someone has a problem, they can they can call me, have them call me. He said that several times. And it's just it's almost it's laughable because, you know, that's not the case. And, and two, you know that state officials, namely the governor, is not going to be the one who has to bear the brunt of whatever economic fallout. Because on one hand, we kind of have an idea of what's going to happen over the next, say, one, two, three, four months, but we don't know. And, you know, when we get to September and you have elected officials on the chopping block potentially for re-election or whatever the case may be, or when, you know, counties start breaking down their budgets, trying to figure out what 2021 is going to look like, they're going to be the ones who draw all the heat because you're going to, taxes are going to skyrocket. They're going to have to. I mean, you're talking about effectively 20% cuts across the board if we don't see funding from the federal government, which is going to be the next thing we talk about here. You know, it, it just doesn't seem um, like everyone is really paying close attention to the full breadth of the situation on the economic side, especially state leaders. Yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of a Band-Aid approach. The PPP is a great idea to, to keep working people on the payroll, but to do what? In most businesses, they're not. They're, they're, it's a percentage. I, I was telling you before we went on, my normal drive to work is at 4 o'clock in the morning, so I don't see people anyway. But today, driving from Rushville to here in Seneca Falls, you know, 8.30, quarter of 9 on a Friday morning, there was nobody on the road. Yep. You drive by the bank, which would normally have, you know, 15 or 20 cars in the parking lot. There's no one in the parking lot. The lights are off. I mean, nobody's doing any business. And, and the other thing that I haven't heard discussed very much is inflation. The classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services. And that's what you have right now. You've yeah. got this massive infusion of money and basically nowhere to spend it. Yeah. You know, it, it, the whole idea of a stimulus is, hey, I got a check, I'm going to go buy a flat screen TV or I'm going to go to the furniture store and buy a sofa. Well, you can buy the flat screen TV if you want at Walmart, but the furniture store is closed probably. There, there's, It's been the typical kind of Band-Aid approach. Oh, we need to get people back to work. Well, here's some money to do that. And then, oh yeah, this creates 11 more problems. What are we going to do about those? Yeah. And there hasn't been, even on the system side, there hasn't really been a ton of discussion, it seems, about what systems would better help us get through this. There is such a focus right now on getting more tests and you know figuring out if there's a treatment or figuring out a vaccine. And it, it seems like it seems to be the thing that is missing right now is the realization that if our systems suck, which it appears some of them at least do suck, um, you're not going to get any of these desired outcomes 
in the short or medium term, maybe in the long term, maybe. Well, Maybe. the idea of the economy reopening, it's unfortunate. The way the argument has been framed, it's a lot of people want us to believe that we can have a somewhat open economy accompanied by rampant death, and there's very little discussion of something in between. Yep. The idea, again, like we've talked about here before, uh, Yates County, where I live, population 25,000, has, I believe, single-digit number of active cases right now. That's an argument that if I want to start patronizing the businesses there, I should be allowed to. If you're still afraid and don't feel like you should go out, then you can stay home and not go out. But there has to be a fuller weighing of all the factors. I mean, there's a lot of factors besides the death count and the gross domestic product. There's a whole bunch of other things that we have to think about as well. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, so the Wall Street Journal reported this reported this week, uh, one major issue with the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, was that massive companies like Shake Shack, Alta, uh, and a bunch of others, a steakhouse that's predominantly in the Southeast, but a national chain nonetheless, received loans. And this was, to me, probably the most interesting thing. I think it was about... Um, I want to say $60 billion worth of the of the total monies had gone to different companies that, that otherwise wouldn't have or shouldn't have received it. it. It's interesting because no matter, there's a lot of scenarios, this is the way I thought about it, there are a lot of scenarios where I could see some of these larger chains receiving some of this money under certain circumstances. If you have franchise locations, I could see that scenario because the financial burden falls on the franchisee and not the company, but the company would, in theory, I suppose, be trying to get the loan. Um, A couple of the big ones did actually pay the money back, but it drew a ton of criticism from the actual small businesses. And we talked about, like before, the sole proprietors. Um, Initially, before uh, the sole proprietors were able to get fully through the unemployment system, the state had been saying, well, don't worry, you can apply for this federal program and you'll be able to get through that. Well, as it turns out, many who didn't have connections to established banks weren't able to get through. You have tons of small businesses now who who simply haven't been able to uh, move forward. And there are all of these questions like, how is how is this going to be administered in a way? And this is like, I think of this as the, the onion. This is the first layer of corruption that we found in this CARES Act overall. Fast forward two or three years, I'm sure there will, there will be plenty more examples um, highlighted. But it goes back to the point, like, you can't just throw money at a problem when it's something this big. Like, you need a system. You need a robust system that can handle this kind of crisis. And it goes all the way back to the beginning when people said, and it was people on both sides of the political spectrum said, you can't prepare for this kind of scenario. You can't prepare for a doomsday scenario. Well, apparently we should because our entire economy rests on whether we successfully navigate this thing or not. Well, and unfortunately, anytime that you start handing out money, it gets into how come he got some and I didn't. I mean, I guess I take a little bit different view in terms of the size of a business because under the Paycheck Protection Plan, 
most, if not all, of this money goes to pay workers. So to me, does it matter if it's a company with three workers or a company with 30,000? If the company with three is going to lay off three and the company with 30,000 is going to lay off 30,000, I think they're equally deserving of that money to put those people back to work. I think it was a very well-intentioned program. The, the idea was, here's bailout money with, with pretty stringent strings attached. Because in the past, you know, the, the bailouts that, that took place in 2008-2009 largely went to big Wall Street banks who screwed up and brought it on themselves anyway. The PPP, the idea is, here's money for all you businesses, but you can't just buy your stock with it. You can't just stick it in the bank. You have to use it primarily to pay personnel and then a few other, I think, rents and mortgages and yeah. utilities and some other things are, are in there. So, I mean, in, in terms of a, a government handout of money, I think it was pretty well-intentioned, and I think it was designed in a way to try to prevent it from being abused. Mm-hmm. So NYSEC says the impact on communities across the region is going to be devastating if federal funding is not entered into the equation soon. Uh, the state is facing a shortfall of between 10 and $15 billion, depending on which report you go by. Uh, and yesterday, the war of words between Governor Andrew Cuomo and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell reached uh, its own apex. Cuomo referred to McConnell as the Grim Reaper and said the idea of states filing bankruptcy is, quote, one of the dumbest ideas he's ever heard, end quote. McConnell said funding states after the pandemic would be nothing more than a blue state bailout, um, which kind of goes back to some of the things that you and I had been talking about um, before in terms of reopening and when things reopen and how this is being framed from the White House going down. Um, so if you want, start that conversation off because I, I, I well, know we both have some Here's the first here. thing, and this, was, this always just strikes me. When we start talking about local dollars and state dollars and federal dollars, they're all our dollars that must be taken away from us in taxes. So what the New York State Association of Counties is saying is that the only way we can survive is if you take more money away from us so you can give it back to us from a different office. I mean, it just it, the math doesn't work. It, it's it's there's no such thing as federal money that we can give to the states. It's our money that's taken away and redistributed. I mean, it, it just it's an absurd. I understand what they're saying, but but think about it. There there's no distinction. There's there when you get a dollar, it's not marked state, federal, county. It's just a dollar. So the only way that the federal government can give the counties and the municipalities money is if they take it away from us in the first place. I, I mean, you know, somebody said something about, you know, the idea that if somebody comes and, and robs you at gunpoint and takes $1,000, if he comes back the next day and gives you back 50 should you thank him? My, it, It's interesting because, like, I... I Listen to that exchange, that back and forth, which played out basically over a span of hours um, between Wednesday and Thursday. Interesting because in my mind, he can, and I say he, Mitch McConnell can, can make that statement that it would be nothing more than a blue state bailout. But the bottom line is that um, folks in upstate, rural upstate New York, counties that are very red, like as red as any part of the rest of the U.S., frankly, um, would be the ones who would hardest hit in this scenario. When New York State loses money and things get cut, 
the things that get cut first are not the things downstate in New York City. They just aren't. It, that's a fact. Um, and when you look at upstate New York and the, the issues and the challenges that the Finger Lakes region, Western New York, the Southern Tier in particular also, um, are dealing with, it's just, it's unimaginable to think that this would be a, a blue state bailout. Really, if, if, this, if the state gets money from the federal government, um, it's not going to be to bail out New York City. It is, frankly, money that will keep small rural Republican municipalities in upstate New York alive. And I, there isn't any other way in my mind to frame it other than to say, I mean, to put it very bluntly like that. Well, and, and it just seems to me that all of this is an argument for, at least on a limited basis, beginning to reopen the economy. Because basically, most of our taxation in this country is taxation of economic activity. Mm-hmm. So that's why when we frame the argument as, if you are in favor of opening the economy, you want everyone to die, we can't have a very productive discussion there. People have died from this virus. People will die from it whether or not we reopen the economy. So we have to make a considered judgment of the kind that we do every day. 50,000 people a year die in cars. Yet I drove one here this morning because the advantage of not having to walk from Rushville to Seneca Falls is outweighed by the chance I might die in a car crash. I mean, but unfortunately, in our political climate, we're rarely able to have those kinds of nuanced discussions of risk and reward. You can't just, you cannot create wealth out of thin air. This idea that that the only thing we need is to just give everybody money who's been harmed, that money has to come from us in the form of taxes, or we have to borrow it and send our debt through the roof and spend the next century paying it off. I, I mean, at some point, we've got to get to work. It's great that we have a paycheck, paycheck protection program. What would be better for that person would be have their job back. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's the thing. is, And like, I mean, have their job back. Obviously, they get it back with the PPP, but have it right. back under normal economic circumstances. My, my thing is, is especially as it connects to the PPP, is that's a great program if the assumption is that in two months, because it, it effectively gives you 10 weeks of, of payroll, you're back to normal. But it's clear that even in the best case scenario, in 10 weeks, we're not back to normal. I mean, we're a month in, and uh, frankly... And then come the two. calls for the next round. Right. Now we need another 10 weeks, and it's so, just... You know, I don't know what the, the, you know, it's almost like this is really nice right now, but in another month, no one's going to care and no one's going to remember that everybody got a stimulus check for $1,200 and, you know, businesses, big and small, got tens of thousands, millions of dollars, whatever the case may be. It won't matter if their doors are still shut and they're not allowed to even start to resume um, economic activity. To that end, one of the big announcements that came out this week was actually that Governor Cuomo had effectively, I guess, conceded to the calls that reopening should happen on a region-by-region basis. Exactly so. That's what, exactly what he did. So if, that is going to, if that's the way it's going to play out, um, the Finger Lakes region obviously is more effectively called the Greater Rochester uh, region. Um, and former uh, Lieutenant Governor and current uh, Rochester City uh, Chamber of Commerce President uh, Bob Duffy 
will be leading the group, I guess, of folks who will be consulting with the governor about reopening the Finger Lakes region. Your thoughts on it as a as a tactical move, because that's the way I'm thinking about it from the governor's perspective, this in some way takes the heat off of him and puts someone who most people, most people, um, view favorably uh, in the Finger Lakes region uh, in charge of the, in that effort. Well, I think this all started with, uh, I believe it was a week ago yesterday that the president issued his plan for a limited reopening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it made very good sense. It was very well thought out. It was, if you can meet these criteria in reduction of cases, reduction of deaths, then you can begin to open certain things. For example, schools weren't part of phase one because schools are very crowded. And any of us who's ever had school kids know that when one school kid gets an illness, they all get it. So I thought it was a very well thought out plan. And then not only did the president issue the plan, but he also declared, after saying all along, I'm the supreme authority, I will decide when things open, not the states, he then threw it back to the states and said, here's my plan, but states, it's all up to you. He mentioned New York specifically. If you don't feel comfortable doing this, don't do it right away. That very day, the governor moved New York and paused two more weeks out to May 15th. I think Donald Trump set a trap for him, and he walked into it, and now I think he's begun to realize it. So now we have this plan for a limited reopening, but the problem is, and that we I've grumbled about this before, is is including Monroe County in with the Finger Lakes, because one of these things is not like the other. You know, COVID in South Seneca, or COVID, there you go, Ovid in South Seneca County is much different than Rochester in Monroe County, population 770,000. I wish maybe if they had done it on a county basis. But then I'm not sure what the motivation is here. Is the motivation really to get things going again, or is it to placate the people who want Governor Cuomo's head because they've been out of work for six weeks? There's, There's so much politics involved in it that I guess until we see how it begins to play out, I'm at least a little bit suspicious of the motive. I think the theory is that these regional folks are going to be better equipped to make decisions about when to start allowing different types of economic activity. My my issue is is that no matter how you reopen, and this is this goes to some of the challenges that I think every community is going to have to deal with, without restricting travel inside of a region. Opening up region by region doesn't really matter that much. Um, I I don't know how, you know, is New York City going to be off limits if the Finger Lakes region in western New York is deemed openable? Is, are you not going to, if central New York isn't open yet, but the southern tier is open, and you're from the southern tier, does that mean you can go into into central New York? Or if you're in central New York, you can go into the southern tier? I, I think there are so many issues with how logistically that happens unless this is really just kind of a precursor to all of the regions getting together and saying we're all going to open at the same time whether that's two weeks from now or two months from now um just sort of and dealing with whatever whatever the fallout is from that afterward 
Well, and that's one of the big discussions is is that if we open too soon, what happens? I mean, you can take Ontario County, population 100,000. Active number of cases right now is in the upper 30s, I believe. We've had three deaths, if my numbers are up to date. So there's a pretty good argument there that we've passed the peak. The numbers are barely moving. I mean, there's a case, two, three cases every day that there's really no reason why a furniture store in Ontario County can't reopen. But, I don't, you know, is that going to mean that people are going to flock to that furniture store from 75 miles away from another region? I don't know. But then the other, the other aspect is the political. I mean, you've got, you know, Bob Duffy's a pretty politically connected guy in New York State. How many people do you think are lobbying him right now? How many industry groups and trade groups saying, hey, you know, ours needs to be open. The golf course owners are going to want the golf courses opened, and the bowling alley owners are going to want the bowling alleys opened. And, and the and golf it, courses are open. They, okay, I mean, that's right. They did come back. So, yeah. It is interesting, though, because I think you're right to some degree. You're putting – I mean, he is the president of one of the state's largest chambers of commerce. I mean, where do you think his – where do you think his allegiance is lying? Right, and, and former lieutenant governor. So, I mean, he's, he's connected in both the business and political communities. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of a pickup off of something we talked about uh, before, the last time you were here. Uh, a story out of the Ithaca Times this week lays out all of the uncertainty that one college in Tompkins County is facing, like a lot of others. Cornell University uh, – essentially said they're going to lose between 160 and 210 million dollars by the end of next year potential losses of 40 million dollars per year are possible in the following two years uh, layoffs cuts and pretty much everything else you can possibly imagine is on the table at this point um, and I, I bring this up because these cuts or cuts like this surely aren't going to be unique right so if you're a prospective college student or if you're a parent of a prospective college student, are you reevaluating? Because that seems to be the one thing that I keep coming back to is I think about the current students. Um, obviously, one of our, our interns is graduating this year, uh, Gabe Petrazio. Um, he's navigated his own situation, no graduation, stuff like that. Um, but for the students who are just entering or haven't entered yet or maybe haven't even committed yet, it seems like there there is so much uncertainty tied in now. And in addition to that uncertainty, if the and it seems like in certain places online learning is going to have to continue next fall. Um I am very curious how these colleges are going to put this all together because you surely, and I don't know what, you know, take, pick your institution, pick your dollar amount. Say your college ordinarily costs $50,000 a year, like a lot of these private institutions are very expensive. Um, if you aren't ever allowed to go to the campus, or if you once you go to the campus, you have to stay locked in your dorm room, um, is it still worth $50,000? Is that education, this really tests the theory of what a college education is worth, especially at some of these more um, we'll call it uh, top tier institutions. Is an education at Hobart and William Smith is that still worth sixty plus thousand dollars? Maybe closer to seventy thousand dollars if you're paying full out of pocket. If you aren't allowed to go to campus, 
Well, full disclosure, first off, as many of you know, but if you Always. don't, I broadcast <laughs> uh, sports for Hobart and William Smith when they have sports, which is not right now, so uh, I do derive some of my income from them under normal purposes. I think the first question that you have to ask is, in the post-COVID economy, does a college degree become worth more or worth less? If there are going to be fewer jobs to compete for, is it now more valuable for me to have a degree, or is it now more likely than ever that I'm going to take my English literature degree and become a barista? I, I think that's the first question you have to answer. And then, I, yeah, last time we were here, I think colleges may have to reconfigure. I think they may have to own fewer buildings and fewer acres of campus land and maybe devote more resources to things like online learning. I mean, everybody's got to look at, I, I think the kind of the big picture question is, when we look back at the 20th century, is 2020, is it the equivalent of 1929 and the Great Depression, or is it more the equivalent of 2008, 2009, the recession? I, I mean, our economy isn't going to be the same in two years or probably five years or probably 10, but we don't yet know how bad it's going to be. I mean, it might be like the Great Depression. I mean, I you know, somebody made a reference to, to you know, Okies in the Dust Bowl, you know, migrating out to California trying to find farm jobs. I mean, we, we might see some shifts in population and all kinds of things for people trying to find jobs. I, I don't know. I, I don't think there are going to be as many jobs in 2022 in America as there were in 2019. But is it going to be 5% fewer, 10%, 20%? I don't think we know. Yeah, so I, I, I saw this week that uh, Finger Lakes Community College and CUCA College uh, joined forces to basically push more um, med students into the, into the world, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, and, and partnerships like that are probably going to be more necessary now than they have been in the past. Um, my thought is, so I, I went through this, I thought back to when I was in college and, you know, I, I think about what it would have been like if when I signed on the dotted line and committed to going to one place to not know if the program I'm entering will exist in a year or two. If colleges are losing a hundred plus million dollars, that is going to affect operation, like potentially on an existence level. Like what happens if you go to school at a college and, you know, three years from now, the economic situation continues and they aren't able to, you know, meet basic demands and they have to shut down. I mean, I think we could potentially see a big, big shift in what college institutions look like. I think we could in some ways see some of the private entities fade away, especially some of the smaller private schools. Um, Wells College is one that, that typically comes to mind. Right. They've been vocal about the, the financial issues that they've had before the pandemic. Um, and it just, it, it seems to me that if I'm a student, I am, I'm very concerned about what's next. And I, I am not confident in any institution, no matter how rosy a picture they paint, whether they're state-owned or whether they're privately owned, that they're going to be able to fulfill their end of the bargain, their end of the contract. So I, I honestly, you know, 
And I'm curious what the the legal standing is there. Like what who's on the hook for what in that scenario if it happens? It's never happened before, I don't think. I mean, we've seen some of these uh, online schools fold up in the last 10 to 15 years, but we've never seen institutions, like physical institutions that don't only like have a huge presence in the academic world, higher education world, but also a huge stake in local economies fold up. And that to me is the big looming concerning question right now, especially for well, students. Well, and, and even before this, there had been a shift in attitude towards the trades. We see these ads, you know, Mike Rowe does all these ads about how, you know, we're going to need skilled tradespeople. So I, I don't know if, if we're going to see an economy that shifts more in that direction. You know, those places tend to have lower overhead. They don't have a big fancy library. Yeah. They have a building somewhere with some desks and chairs and some labs, and that's that. So it's – but when you talk about that that uncertainty – Ultimately, that feeds into the problem because if we have people all over America afraid to spend money because they don't know if they'll have it next year, whether it's on education or whether it's buying a home or whatever else in the economy, fear of spending money is not very good to regrow an economy. I am I, still very hesitant to believe that there is going to be widespread fear to spend money. I think this is this is one of those unique scenarios where people – there is going to be pent-up demand to some degree. I think what's going to be interesting or what the real question is at this point, um, the, the people who have pushed themselves into the I will not re-engage with anything until this, this pandemic is fully over, what percentage of the economy does, do those folks actually represent? That is the question. And do we see more basically like, micro economy like regional economies grow and more you know self-reliance on sort of the region rather than these big giant chains and supply chains that ultimately prove to be a little clunky and a little challenging in times like this that's a very interesting question because i think the the places most heavily hit by covid have been the more densely populated cities where the economy had been doing better anyway and i think that it's safe to say that the reluctance to re-engage tends to run red and blue. I mean, the the Republican-governed states are the ones that are kind of chomping in the bit right now wanting to get it open. Democratically-governed states are the ones holding back. There, there might be a little bit of a rebalancing of the economy. I mean, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, some sociologists and, and economists and psychologists can all stay really busy for the next decade or so seeing all the various ways that this shakes itself out. So another part of the education uh, theme to this story, um, one of the episodes this week of our new Daily Debrief series, we chatted with uh, Steve Zielinski, the South Seneca uh, Central School District superintendent. Uh, He said that approximately two-thirds of their budget comes from state and federal aid, uh, which is undoubtedly going to be slashed. The question is for how much. I wanted to talk about this because I, I, I think a lot of these small rural districts, and you've got plenty of them around you in Yates County, um, and Ontario County has their fair share as well, um, are going to be put in a really interesting spot. And I'm curious, what do you think two, three, four, five years from now, some, what some of these small districts look like, assuming funding isn't made whole? 
there's going to be tremendous pressure for consolidation, and there will also be tremendous resistance to that on the part of the smaller schools. So I think maybe, you know, some some combined, like you talked about colleges combining, I think we might see high schools think about combining, for example, does South Seneca, and I, I don't know, you know, who's got what programs, but let's say South Seneca has a shop program and Romulus has a shop program. Well, maybe they have one in one of the schools and they bus students to the other school from time to time. I, th- I think that there's, at the very least, there'll need to be those kinds of cooperations and things. And, and you know, maybe, maybe we don't need a separate principal Sorry if I'm theoretically taking anybody's jobs away here, but maybe we don't need a separate principal for South Seneca and Romulus. Maybe one principal can cover both buildings. I mean, I think those are some of the ways that people have to think because there's always been a a resistance to consolidation because people like having their local schools. I think they feel like they have more control over their local school than if we had you know, if we split up into North Seneca Regional and South Seneca Regional. So I, I, I kind of feel like we're going to go a step further here. Um, I actually am in the camp now of feeling like this is going to push us toward county-wide school systems. Um, I think that there's probably more interest in this inside various school systems around the region and around the state than anybody realizes um, I've heard it quietly mentioned a few times over my over my last four or five years of talking with school officials from different districts. Um, you never hear it publicly, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure. So using South Seneca as an example, I'm not sure that you can merge, you know, uh, you can merge a South Seneca and a Romulus to create a sustainable district in the moving forward. Now, the question becomes... How do you merge together or bring together these districts that then are still small by comparison to larger districts, um, but are significantly further away from each other? So, so you're saying a consolidated district, but not consolidated into one building. Not consolidated. Keep the, keep the four right. schools, but under one under managing one, umbrella. Under one managing umbrella, and perhaps you're having to do more busing from different from different buildings for different things. Maybe you could lose some buildings, but I, to me, it seems like you would need to take a countywide approach because I'm not sure, you know, at the end of the day, you can merge two small districts, but you still have the same number of kids right, right. to, you know, to deal with it. It, it. The question is, is how do you handle the geography? Well, I think if that's presented to taxpayers in terms of you have this option, or we can keep things the way they are, and your school taxes are going up 40%, that might make it more palatable for people. I, I think that's, going forward, I, I think we're all going to have to accept a lot of harsh economic realities on a lot of fronts, and that, that may very well be one, that, that you know, do we need, again, I, I'm taking people's jobs away here theoretically, but do we need four superintendents Making an average of, I'm guessing, a hundred grand a year over the four Seneca County school districts, or could we do with one and save three hundred thousand dollars in salary? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm not sure that there's a there's an answer, but I do think that a lot of the Cuomo has been referred to as the dissolution 
um, governor, especially in these parts, um, famously, over the last uh, five, six, seven, eight years. Listen, I, I, I think that there is going to be a lot of dissolution. Well, and we've seen it in business. Done. So why, why should the public sector be immune, to use a word that we've used a lot lately, you know, we've seen this in, in business, consolidations, mergers, dropping, you know, we, we see Sears and Pennies and Kmart all in trouble and Walmart takes over. So so why should school districts or government be any different? Do we need do we need a separate Seneca Falls and Waterloo and Ovid and whoever else town government? Or can we get by with one single county government? With, with larger geographic responsibilities. I, mean, I think those are all going to be discussions that we're going to have to have. We, we, may, we may say, no, we don't want it that way, but I think we'll have to at least think about some of those things. And, and it may be necessary if people aren't willing to, or, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, let taxes increase by 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 percent or whatever the case may be. If you using South Seneca as an example, as in just in having that conversation with uh, Superintendent Zelensky, there you couldn't raise taxes enough to make up what the district is probably going to lose. And even if you could, it's not it's not realistic to put that on people. So there, I my hope is that there is federal money eventually that comes down. And I know like. We just talked about it a little while ago. It's not really federal money. It's not really, you know, any different than the money that we will ultimately right. be paying in some way, shape, or form. But at the very least, it allows these districts to keep going in the medium term. Because the, the big question right now for a lot of these school districts is, can they continue with their feeding programs, which are absolutely crucial right now? Can they continue with this remote learning, whatever they're doing right now? Um, and there's going to need to be investment if that's going to be a possibility moving forward. Like you're going to need to do more to get in the infrastructure necessary, laptops, broadband, all the things that people need, that kids need in these homes to be able to continue forward. It's going to take more investment, not not less of it. So. Well, and are schools going to have to confine themselves to reading, writing, and arithmetic? Are, are, are what few art programs and music programs and things that are left going to have to go by the wayside? Schools may have to say... <laughs> You know, we'd love to have a band and a chorus, but we can't afford it anymore. If you want to play a musical instrument, you're going to have to go buy one yourself and, and you know, yourself. start your own private band, I guess. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, we, we see, I guess it would be instructive to go back and study how we made it through the 1930s. Now, of course, a lot of that was the New Deal, which yeah. was a massive social program of the type that I'm not sure America would go for today as readily as it did then. Yeah. Uh, so this week we caught up with Peter Mandius from the Waterfront blog to talk about some of the environmental stories he's been working on over the winter. We talked about Greenwich and Dresden, uh, which was fascinating by itself. But another thing that we talked about was uh, what happens to all of these environmental projects right now that are in the works, specifically What's going to happen with public hearings? We've seen some communities hold regular run-of-the-mill board meetings virtually. Um, Governor Cuomo cleared the way, he said, for, um, for government entities to hold public hearings virtually um, with conference calling and things like that. Um, but 
it's not entirely clear what the Committee on Open Government thinks of this, and it's not entirely clear how this will stand up in court um, when we do get back to whatever the new normal is. Um, we've watched these situations play out before. We've seen our share of legal battles for various uh, proposals and projects here in the Finger Lakes. What is your feeling on that question and on that, that debate about whether these virtual public hearings are legitimate government functions? I think that they will make it much easier to have much less open government, and I think governments will take advantage of that. That's a pretty concise way of saying it. <laughs> like, to me, it's interesting because I don't know that there is a good a good answer here, right? Because I don't think at the same time that you can put everything on hold, right? Like, you can't just say, well, for the next year and a half, we're just not going to do anything meaningful in government. If that's the case, then that's a, a different animal to have to tackle entirely. But... It does seem like government should have to figure out a way to get this done in a more reasonable way, whether it be the government, the, the board or whoever is in a physical place and they're actually directly video conferencing with, a, with speakers as they're going through or if they're just holding them in larger venues with people more readily spaced out or whatever the case may be or if you're going to take uh, more written uh, responses as far as public hearing goes. But ultimately, you, you and I both know that when push comes to shove and a project goes through or gets approval that someone doesn't feel that was right, you're going to have a legal challenge. And furthermore, you're going to have this... Except, of course, that the courts are closed right now, so you can't legally challenge anything. <laughs> well, and those legal challenges take years to settle out anyway. But it, it draws up this really interesting question to me because it's like there should be a better way to do public hearings anyway. Like we shouldn't all have to pile into a room to give feedback about something that we either like or don't like. But to your point... I think more times than not, we'll see the rubber stamping of projects rather than the close, critical eye that the whole public hearing process is supposed to create. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the responsibility for our government is on us. Yep. We have a representative form of government. We, we elect or appoint people to do things that we're too busy to do or lack the expertise to do. It's it's going to be more important than ever for people to be engaged yeah. and to pay attention to what their government's doing and to make sure they understand it. Uh, I mean, it shouldn't be difficult to put bills or treaties or agreements online in a PDF that everyone can read and you know make email comments on if they want to. I mean, we, we have... Going back to one of our ongoing themes, we've talked about how, especially at the, the small town and, and county level, how governments lag so far behind in terms of technology and online. I mean, you talked about at the very opening here, still having trouble with the unemployment system. I, I mean, a Google or an Amazon could have had that fixed before lunchtime. Yeah. I mean, that's what they do is, you know, have massive online category. I can press Google and search for anything I want and get a result in two seconds, it shouldn't take me three or four days or a week 
to get through to make an unemployment claim. But for whatever reason, partly money, uh, they, they have not been able to do that. But it's going to be up to all of us to pay more attention because I think that you bring a, up a, a good point, which is it's going to be easier than ever to sort of rubber stamp things and do everything in the smoke-filled room. And uh, unless people stand up and, and say, no, we're not going to let you do that, they'll do it. Because that's always the, you know, somebody asked early on, someone, I don't know, Cuomo announced something, and somebody said to me, can he do that? And I said, he can unless someone stops him. Yeah. It's Ultimately, government can do anything it wants until we stop them. Yeah. I, to me, you've got this challenge because, like, even something as simple as an executive session. How the hell does an executive session happen now if it's happening on Zoom? So you have to create a second meeting. You have to leave the first meeting, enter that that secondary meeting, and then yeah. come back into the quote-unquote public meeting afterward and make sure that all of your uh, aging elective representatives can navigate that. It's just a it's an incredible ask, and I, you know I think for that reason alone, you know a lot of these governing bodies are going to have to figure out an alternative to just doing things digitally. Even though doing things digitally is, I think, probably the most important thing that any of them could have been focusing on in the last five years and certainly is the most important thing that any of them could be focused on in the next five years. But um, where can folks hear you once again once you're back from vacation on Monday? Bright and early Monday morning, I'll be on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva. That's 95.9 FM and 1240 AM WGBA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 FM and 1590 AM WAUB. All right, Ted, thanks for coming up. We'll do it again next week. Always fun. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com slash debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>